Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, this is a first for me. Chaim Chern has been driving me crazy to do a series on the yard sites of famous people. It's not something I really was so comfortable with doing, but nevertheless... He's bugging me constantly, and I figure he must know what he's talking about. So I'm going to undertake to do it. Today is the yard site of the Rashash. And Chaim's uh, been mentioning that to me for a couple of days now, so I'm going along with his uh, entreaties. Uh, as I said, today is the 10th of spot, right? So it's a yard site of a very famous person that nobody's heard about, most of you. And that's the Rashash. Now, I'm not talking about the Rashash, I'm talking about the Rashash. If you're a yeshiva guy, the Rashash is the one written in the back of the Gemara, Rashmul Strashen from Vilna, who has all those famous notes on the Talmud. But I'm talking about the other Rashash, who actually is more famous, as the Shalm Sharabi, but he's not so famous among the Ashkenazim and uh, the non-Kabbalists. This is somebody who lived in the uh, 1700s. Now, I really was not comfortable with starting to give a talk even for a few minutes to a general audience about a makobal, because what does anybody know about this sort of thing? But since I got a sign from heaven, I figured maybe somebody's trying to tell me something. You see, two weeks ago, I was in um, Teaneck, and I gave a talk there, which had to do, among other things, with a famous rabbi of yesteryear, Abin Gershon Kutover, who was brother-in-law of the Baal Shem Tov and a chavrusa um, with the Nota Behuda. And so happens that in the audience uh, was my good friend Chaim Kranzler, the son of the late great Dr. Kranzler, Mrs. Kranzler, the principal of TA back in Baltimore of yesteryear. And they happened to be descended from Abram Gershon Kutuber. I know that. And I mentioned that in my talk. And he came over to me afterwards. This is strange. And he said, you know, they say that Abram Gershon Kutuber was an Ashkenazi Jew when he came to Yushalayim in the 1740s, he learned in the Kabbalistic Yeshiva, Beitel, uh, for a number of years. And I thought like to myself, why are you telling me this? Uh, that's strange. Knows why bring up that particular uh, detail? And then, like a few days later, Chaim started telling me, talk about the Rashash, talk about the Rashash, who is Mr. Beitel in Yushalayim. And so I'm taking this as a sign that I should proceed. Uh, since we're in the subject of spookyism and mysticism. Now, for a very audience like this, I would make just a few points and not go into whole detailed biography because you know it's sitting for a couple hours, and I don't have a couple hours. Uh, the Rashash of Shalm Sharabi is an example of a certain type of topos, or trope, a certain kind of story that you find popping up in Jewish history, Jewish writings from time to time which I call the Clark Kent Superman uh, phenomenon, in which somebody who is like relatively unknown, but is a very great person, a nister as they call it, is discovered, and it turns out Clark Kent is really Superman, 
And then in uh, one variation of the story, uh, the people who are at the head of the uh, Judaism or the institutions make way and say, since we discovered now that you're Superman, you take over. And a sudden transformation is made, and a person who doesn't have the right background, as we'd say today, in terms of coming from the right yichas and the right family and married the right girl and all the rest of it, suddenly becomes the head of a yeshiva or a Sanhedrin or some other big institution. This happens rarely in Judaism, as you can imagine. Usually, Shiva world, the rabbinical world, is a pretty closed system. They strive for that anyway. Um, so, for example, I could just think right off the top of my head, I could think of four famous cases. Uh, one is Hill and the Bnei Becerra that many of you are probably familiar with. In the Gemara in uh, Pesachim, where way back in the time of Hillel, the people in charge of the Sanhedrin was the Bnei Becerra, and a famous question arose, what do you do when Pesach is in such a nature that the Seder is on Saturday night? Which means you have to shech the Karm Pesach on Shabbos itself. And are you allowed to do that? And without going through all the details, the famous story is that the Bnei B'Seir did not know the answer, even though they were heads of the yeshiva. And this fairly obscure person called Hillel HaBavli knew the answer. And then the Bnei B'Seir said, I guess, wow, you're so smart, you know the answer. We quit, you take over, and you be the head of the Sanhedrin. You be the Nasi. And uh, and that happened, of course, and that's how Hillel became famous as Hillel. This is very unusual that a Rosh Hashiva, because somebody else is, uh, knows something he doesn't know, says, I quit being the head of the Yeshiva and you take over. That's why it's mentioned in the Gemara. As a matter of fact, Rabbi Huda Nasi, who was a descendant of Hill many centuries later, said, I can do a lot of righteous things, but I couldn't do what the B'nai B'seira did. If somebody came to me and knew something I didn't know, I couldn't just simply say, I quit, I vacate my position and you take over. So that was most unusual. A, a, a variation of this, or a similar incident that comes to mind, is a thousand years later or so, when um, you have the story of the famous four captives, the famous tale in which four rabbis, big rabbis, were on a ship in the Mediterranean in the 10th century, and the ship was captured by Muslim pirates, or privateers, I should say, and at that time, piracy was a business, still is, and... The bottom line is all the passengers that are taken captive on the ship are divided into two categories. Those who will fetch a ransom and those who will not. And if you won't, then you're thrown overboard. But if you will, then they keep you till they get somewhere where they can sell you, make some money on you. And Jews having a very strong tradition, as we know, of pity and shvuyim, it's like a fundamental in our religion. So these Jews, once upon a time, had pity and shvuyim committees in every town, especially in the ports, in the Mediterranean. And the story is told that these four rabbis were taken captive, mm. and the captors did not necessarily know who they were. Uh, you know, probably looked like old men or something like that. And they're all captured and, and uh, you know, torn, uh, the clothes were torn. And as the pirate ships uh, landed in different ports in the Mediterranean, Local committees bought them off one by one. And others, they landed at in Alexandria, and the Pinyin Shui Committee had enough money to pay for one captive, so one rabbi was redeemed and uh, freed there. And another one, I remember, was in Tunisia, in Karwan. And a third one, I think we don't know where he was. And the fourth one is the most famous story, the fourth rabbi, because it was Moshe ben Chanoch. He's a big Talmud Chacham. But again, he looked like a piece of junk with his, uh, you know, having been beaten up and uh, torn in brag, uh, you know, uh, in rags. And his wife had jumped over the ship. So with the father and the son, they didn't look anything special. 
And when the pirates or the privateers came back to Spain at that time, the Caliphate of Cordoba, and, and they came to the Jewish community there, meaning when the pirate ship sailed from the Mediterranean it, straight up the Guadalquivir River to Cordoba, which is the capital city of the country, the Pinion Shooting Committee there ransomed this guy off, him and his son, and uh, not for a lot of money, just looked like some Joe Schmo, as they say. And the famous story is that he went to the shul, and just the same thing happened as Hill and B'nai B'Seir. The local rabbi was giving a shear, and somebody asked a question in the Gemara, and the rabbi couldn't answer it. And this stranger sitting in the back in rags said, I know the answer, and he gave the answer and explained the Gemara. And then the rabbi said, wow, you're much bigger than I am. I quit, you become the head. And that's how Ramosh Mechanoch became the head of the yeshiva in Cordoba and founded the Sephardic glorious tradition of Torah scholarship. Same idea. He didn't look like much, but then when they discovered who he is, then it became a big deal. A third story pops to mind. That's the Baal Shem Tov himself. It's a very famous, very classic part of the Baal Shem Tov story. Uh, true or not, whatever, is that the Baal Shem Tov was, again, not from the right family. He was a little guy, but secretly he was a Superman, and he knew all the Kabbalah and the Nigla and the Nister, particularly the Kabbalistic stuff, but he hid it, and therefore he was only a, uh, what was it, a, a nursery school assistant, and uh, he liked it that way. Until one day, a big Tamachach was passing through town, and he kind of looked at him, and he see he didn't act like a regular dumbbell. And he stalked him, and finally discovered him at night, secretly doing Kabbalah, and he kind of outed him. And there's a whole long story that's connected with that, which I'll skip over for now. And the fourth story that comes to mind is of our hero today, Thrashash, Shom Sharabi, whose yard is today, because um, the story is, anyway, that he was a Yemenite Jew, so we're not dealing with Ashkenaz or Sephardi, we're dealing with Taman, Yemen, which is far away at the bottom of the Arabian Peninsula. And he lived in the 1700s, I think, I believe 1720 to 1777, so he wasn't that old when he died. And being in Yemen, that was a very strong Jewish community. Most of us don't know much about the Yemenite Jewry, but they, even though they were far away from everybody else, they were like a very stark community in terms of Torah and Yiddishkeit and all that sort of thing. And famous story goes that he was a young man, and uh, from Guy, obviously, and he must have been having a natural aptitude for Nigla and Nister at a very young age. I don't know exactly. But the famous story goes that he was selling... Uh, perfume and ladies, uh, types of uh, uh, cosmetics. Uh, as a profession, that's what a lot of Yemenite Jews were into, that sort of thing. And uh, he had different customers, and an Arab lady took a look at him, and she tried to hit on him like Aisha's Potiphar hit on Yosef, because he must have been uh, uh, handsome. And there's a whole long story that he, he basically jumped out a window or jumped out a bathroom window to escape getting involved with her and uh, ran away, and then he realized he can't stay in the country, because this is not good. It's her word against his, and no good is going to come out of this. It's like a black man in the South 100 years ago. There's no way it's going to come out good for you. And so as a result of this incident, even though he lived in Yemen, in, in fact, he's Sharabi, so that means in Sharab, in the part of Yemen that's near the Red Sea, he started walking, and he wanted to, go, and he wanted to leave and go to Israel. Now, how did he go to Israel in the 18th century? Well, you say it's easy. If you look at the map... You just walk north from Yemen through Saudi Arabia to the uh, Negev, and then next thing you know, you're in Israel. Easier said than done. In Islam, once Muhammad died, 
No Jew was allowed to ever step foot in Arabia. And if they did, they'd be killed or tortured worse. And that's the way it was, and that's the way it is today. As a matter of fact, all the 9-11 business that we have now, all the jihadists and the terrorists and Osama bin Laden, was because they got ticked off because in the war against Iraq, George Bush Sr. put, like, I don't know, a million troops, half a million Christians and non-Muslim troops in Arabia, and that really violated that rule and really ticked them off, as we know. So, if you wanted to go to Israel, and you really wanted to go to Israel from Yemen at that time, you had to go the long route. This is Parshish Bashalach. It's like it says, And therefore, instead of going to Israel straight, you had to go in a big roundabout route. And so he had to walk, imagine this, from Yemen to Aden, which is the next country over in the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, and then get a boat from Aden up the Persian Gulf to southern Iraq, Basra, and then travel from there to Baghdad, and eventually get a caravan from Baghdad to Syria, and then eventually from Syria to Israel, Israel to Yerushalayim. So, I mean, only somebody that's super dedicated would do a thing like I just described, and that's what he did. And had all these adventures along the way, all of them involving, as they say, Clark Kent and Superman. Wherever he comes, he looks like a, a, a nothing and a nobody, but then once he starts participating in the conversations in the yeshiva in Baghdad and in, and I think, Damascus, they say, oh, he's a big deal. And eventually he reaches Yerushalayim, and again, he's very learned already by now in the Kabbalah stuff. This is the age of the Kisvei Arizal, as they call it, when the main part of Kabbalah was the traditions left over by the Ari, who died in 1572, I think. And he didn't run anything, and everybody's wondering what exactly did he teach, because everybody said he's like a Navi, had uh, revelations from heaven about the nature of God and the nature of the universe. Very heavy Kabbalistic stuff. And all Kabbalah, since his time, is Arizal stuff. And very few people understood it and knew it, even today. And without going into too much details, only a few people were able to have the, the head and the uh, ability to penetrate into this kind of world. And our hero, Shalom Sharabi, who's really, I think his name was Mizrahi. They call him Sharabi because he's Sharab. And he reaches Jerusalem, and he goes to this yeshiva, you might say a very small kolel, that had very recently started called Beit El, by a big Sephardi rabbi, Hayun, who was a makubal. And what I mean by that is they studied the Kisvi Ari, um, and, which was manuscript form, actually, in that time. And they tried to penetrate its meanings. And he says, he, and he's a very nice person, apparently, and he approaches him and says, I would like just to be a janitor, a shamus, I'm looking for a job, and I'll take any menial job you want, and I don't even need his salary, just, you know, give me room and board. And uh, he made a good impression, the story goes, on the head of the institution, and said he took him to be the janitor, sweep the floors, clean everything up, uh, I think wake, every, wake the, uh, the members of the group up for Tikkun Leil Chatzos, you know, at nighttime they do that, and all sorts of help them in the mikvah, bring them tea, bring them coffee, whatever, all these menial jobs, and he's Clark Kent. And as far as they know, he's just a nice guy, but he's no player. He doesn't understand the discussions that are going on in the base matters. Of course, you and I know that he does, and uh, really he's Superman. And so the result is that time went by, and he was just, you know, always pretending to be dumb, but he's listening in. And you can imagine the story based on the trip that I just told you. One day, the Rosh Hashiva, the head of the Kolel, 
Rav Chayun says, um, we, today we're going to learn this and this part in the Kisri Ari. In the, uh, and as they go into it, he says, I myself don't understand it. And there are kashas on it, and it's too difficult for me to, to fathom. Does anybody have an idea what's going on? And nobody does, of course, except you and I know the janitor does. So he doesn't want to let on that he knows. And so the story is that at night, when nobody's looking, he writes down, he sneaks into base medicine when no one's there, and he writes down the answer, and he puts it in the book. So the next day, when the Rosh Kolel opens the safer to where they were yesterday, magically... There's a petek, there's a piece of paper explaining the kasha and the terrace in an amazing way. And he's like blown away. What happened over here? Is this Elia Navi? And it happens two or three times. And the whole place is going nuts because nobody knows who did it. He asks everyone, did you do it? Did you do it? Nobody did it. And he's going crazy. Obviously, it never occurred to him that the janitor did it. And the story is that the Rosh Hashiva's daughter, the Rosh Kolo's daughter, got suspicious and she spied. She stayed over all night or something like that to see who's sneaking in the base matters. And, of course, she catches our hero coming in because he did this on a number of times later on also that he wrote down on the piece of paper the answer. And uh, then he hid it, said nobody should know. And she sees him and she tells the father. And the father calls in the janitor and he says, what's the story? Did you write this? And he said, I don't want to say. And he says, I order you to say who you are. And then he says, yes, it was me, but please don't tell anybody. And the father then says, that doesn't work anymore. If Hashem made it that this incident happened, that's a sign that you're supposed to come out of the closet. That's a sign that you're supposed to reveal yourself as Superman. And as a result, he had no choice, the story goes, and he became, you know, he came out of the closet, they all saw who he was, and naturally, as this, you would imagine the story, he marries the Rosh Hashiva's daughter, and uh, when the Rosh Hashiva dies two, three, four years later, he becomes the head of the Beit El, um, Kabbalistic Kolel, Yerushalayim, which is still there today. And he emerges as a big person in understanding Kisvia Rizal. And uh, in many places in the world, the proper way to understand the technical parts of the Kisvia Rizal, especially the davening, which is very important over there, you have to go through him. You have to follow the writings of Rosham Sharabi, Rishash. And uh, I, you probably have, don't know what I'm talking about. And Kabbalah, when you say, Baruch Atah Hashem, Elkeinam you have to have Kavanas, meaning you have to say, when I say Baruch, I, I want my prayer to go this and this way in the Shemayim, in the, in the heavens. And when I say Atah, I want a different direction. And, you know, Hashem and all the rest of it. There's a vast system of directed thoughts which make the prayers become much more powerful than they are when you and I say them. It's a basic element of Kabbalah. And he became the big expert in that. And he's therefore regarded as one of the great Mukabalim of all time. Of all time. So I think I've spoken more than I wanted to. If you're interested, you could go look it up yourself. Uh, because most of us are Ashkenazic Jews and we're not so into the world of Sephardim. We ought to be, but we're not. And certainly not the world of Sephardic Mukabalim. And there were some Sharabis among the biggest of the biggest. And I have to go. So have a good day. Bye. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.